Hey everyone, this is Allison Lee, your host here at CraftCast.com, and on today's show, I'll be talking with Matthew Chimini, a goldsmith, a teacher, and an author of a new book coming up, as well as I have some apps, some books, some music, some other things to share with you, so let's get started. Show number 186. Starting the day again, oh yeah, letting the sun shine in, uh oh. I'm gonna dig within myself Uh oh Life may be never what you think But I think I'll just go with it And create something new Well, hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to CraftCast.com, and me, your host, Allison Lee, where I get to talk to wonderful creative people uh, and share with you that, as well as uh, different things, tools, music, books, things I like to talk about and share with all of you. You know how it goes. So, uh, first up... I uh, have been very busy here over at CraftCats.com. We have amazing classes coming up uh, in jewelry arts, in uh, multimedia arts, polymer clay arts. So much fun talking to all the teachers. And uh, check out the new live classes that are up on the CraftCats.com site. Uh, So many interesting things. Um, If you've been... I might have mentioned this before, but if you're into using the silhouette cutter at all, and it's still sitting in the box because it's too hard to put together and use, definitely you want to be coming to a class coming up live uh, with Suzanne McNinley. She's going to show us all how to use it and and make this really cool bracelet besides. So go check them out. You can tell I'm excited, right? Uh, as well as I'm going to be taking off for a few days going to Miami, which is very nice this time of year. Because uh, where I am in New York, there's lots of white stuff everywhere. So I'm very excited to be going down there and uh, going to a workshop led by a man named Eben Pagan, who I adore. Great visionary uh, mentor person. And there's going to be about 100 of us uh, in this seminar. It's going to be really cool. I'll tell you all about that when I get back. Uh, but then I have to share with you, oh, I'm going to share first this book. And actually, my son gave it to me for Christmas, and it's called The Eye Has to Travel. And it's by Lisa Vreeland, who is, I believe, the granddaughter-in-law of Diana Vreeland. Diana Vreeland worked on um, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar. Uh, She was known for years in the fashion world. She just set the style, the pace, uh, just... I've adored her for years. I mean, she really had a sense of style and design that was just unique and special and really shaped American taste through um, for many years through how she saw fashion and photographs. And this is one of those really big, oversized coffee table books that has um, hundreds of illustrations and photos and magazine spreads and famous photographs. And uh, if you're into fashion and how the history of fashion developed through magazines. You'll love it. The Eye Has to Travel by Lisa Vreeland. So fun. 
And then something I wanted to share with you that came out of the I Love Tools uh, event, the free event that um, we hosted over at Craftcast in a few weeks ago. Uh, and you can watch that video, it's for free over there if you want to see it, is my dear friend, Mr. Robert Dancic. He always has some kind of great tool that he's using and then shares with us. Uh, any of you out there that work a lot with files, metal files, um, wood files, um, what other kind of files are they? The metal files, the skinny little needle files, really skinny ones. This is a handle that fits well in your hand that has this I'm going to call it a doohickey sort of adjustment where it'll hold any type of file handle in it the way that it's sort of um, the catch works that you push it down and you can stick one of your files in there no matter how skinny or fat and hold them with a really nice handle it gives you so much more leverage uh, it's just a great little add-on thing to have if you do a lot of filing and uh, you can find that over at um, Fobone.com or come to the Craftcast site. There's a link right there. Very inexpensive. Oh, it's a great little accessory to have. I bet there's other things you can think of using that too besides just files. Um, that probably is something that you work with in, the, uh, in your studio that also makes a great handle. They're bright red too, so they look good. <laughs> so that's a little something I want to make sure and share with you. And then I found this fun little app called Flipagram, which is sort of a takeoff of those flip books from yesteryear. And uh, you put it on your phone and you just pull out photos that you want to use and, uh, and then pick music you want to put it to. And it makes like a little flip book with them going to the music and the beat. Uh, it's fun. You know, it's fun. We have so many photos now. You could probably do a great little one just with selfie photos of yourself. And uh, it's, it's a little bit entertaining. I think I downloaded it for free even, I have to say. Flipagram. Just one of those fun things to share, fun little videos. Uh, probably great for like a birthday party when you have tons of photos. You could probably put it to the music. Happy birthday. Just some, giving some creative ideas out there. So it's called Flipagram. Uh, you can come see that uh, link over at the Craftcast site if you want a quick link to it. Uh, so there we go. There's some fun things. I have a great guest coming up next, Matthew Shimini who is a goldsmith uh, as well as a teacher, and he has a new book coming out. So uh, great to talk to. And before that, I have a piece of music by a group called Enlightened Madness. Love that name, Enlightened Madness. Name of the song is The Train Knows Where to Go. <laughs> so enjoy that, and then come on back, and I'll be chit-chatting with Mr. Matthew Chimenez. So we're all on this train And we are all alone And the train knows where to go And the train knows where to go Okay, so we're all on this train And we are safe and warm And the train knows by and the train knows where to go and the train knows where to go and the train knows where to go 
collect our souvenirs, good memories and pain. And the train knows where to go, and the train knows where to go. The direction of the tracks are following. On this path, mechanical and steel. Okay, so we are looking out, and we just soak it in, and the train knows where to go. interviewing someone today. I'm very excited because this is really um, my roots. Goldsmithing, love that. So I'm talking today to Matthew Chimenez. I can't say that with a better French accent, but I know he can. Uh, He's a goldsmith and a jeweler, and he does have a book coming out, I believe in 2014, we'll hear about. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about the love of goldsmithing and jewelry making. Well, thank you. Now, let's do a little bit of your history, because I think, I love this part. I think it's really fascinating. You moved, I guess, from France to New Mexico when you were 19 and started studying silversmithing. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I, I grew up in Paris, and, um, and when I finished high school, I moved to New Mexico to, to visit my aunt at first. was a painter there in Taos, mm. and 
and just totally fell in love with the place. Um, gorgeous place and walking around town at, we're seeing all those beautiful pieces of um, Native American Indian jewelry in the windows, contra belts, and, and really loved it. So I started learning those techniques. Now, how, do, now how did you do that? All right, so you see the jewelry, and then did you say, okay, I'm going to see if there's a school here where I can learn how to make that? Or did you just show yeah, up on actually, an Indian reservation and say, hi, <laughs> I'm here? Yeah, it's, Pretty much like that. I met some some servicemen, and it happened that some of them were working at the Pueblo in Taos, okay. and other outside the Pueblo. And first, I watched for days and days, uh, watched them stamping, uh, do inlay work, and slowly tried myself. And now they were doing what would you call now that you can look back at everything, the kind of techniques they were doing. Well, the, I think the main techniques um, they were doing at the time was a lot of stamping, stamp work with turquoise setting, mm -hmm. and inlay work. That was the two main techniques um, I was seeing at first. Right. And of course, lapidary then, yeah. Oh, cutting their own stones, lapidary work. Yeah, for the inlay. The inlay. And did you, do you feel you really learned solid techniques? there oh definitely yeah i mean stamping is still what i'm doing today so uh, for me really the 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 base of my jewelry education came from that yeah uh, soldering yeah I, I of course i i was you know self-taught pretty much because it was from watching and a little bit of comments here and there but um i was missing some technique that's for sure but um, I got a lot out of it. And they were, were they working traditionally at that point with what an acetylene torch, or was it primitive tools, or were, did you have everything available? Uh, no, it was an acetylene torch for the soldering. Right. And okay. yeah, quite quite nice tools already okay. at that time. Okay, so then you go back to Paris, and you do photography. Yeah, I went back. Yeah, I went back to Paris for a year, and I worked uh, as a photographer there. And um, what were you um, photographing? Well, I was actually working for a magazine on uh, boats. So I went to boat shows and to picture up boats and little things like that, mostly. Well, that's a quick it switch. Was... Different equipment, different artistic endeavor. Yeah, I've been doing photography since I'm... Um, 15, um, on and off, and okay. I always loved it, so, yeah. All right, so now you've and spent that's... your year in Paris, and you're photographing, and are you doing any jewelry making? No, no. not much at all. Okay. No, I, at this point, I was uh, really doing photography, and in France was, at the time, I don't know today really, but at the time, it was very difficult to be able to buy server and to get the license. Uh, everything is really... Uh, on books, so you have to get declared, and it was quite complicated. Okay. Well, that could make it a little difficult then. Okay, so then, then what do you do? Then uh, I met my wife mm -hmm. uh, when I went back to Taos for just a, a short visit, and she was uh, moving to West Africa with her mom. 
where she was studying. So I decided to go visit her and, and went to stay for a few weeks. And instead, I stayed for a few years. <laughs> I like your traveling concept. You go visit and stay. <laughs> That's it. So I stayed with her and her mom and her brother. And we all lived together for, yeah, almost three years in Mali, West Africa, in Bamako. Okay. And what made you fall in love, so, beside your girlfriend, what made you fall in love with West Africa? Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, Mali uh, is one of my favorite countries. The culture is so rich. The people are wonderful, uh, just so when, nice. Now, when you say the culture is so rich, okay, that piques my interest for sure. The culture is so rich because of why? What appealed to you about the culture that spoke to you? Specific the music, okay. Music, artwork, and jewelry. I mean, jewelry. There is such a nice inventory of techniques and and ethnies. The Tuareg, the Fulani, um, just beautiful. So the techniques there in the jewelry making. Yeah. So now, okay. So you go there. It's beautiful. You love the music and the artwork, and now you fall across how they're also making jewelry. And that yeah, happens. I met. Oh yeah, I met a couple jewelers, and it just reunited my passion for for jewelry making. And I spent days, I mean years, walking the streets, meeting new jewelers, sitting down with them, learning techniques, and yeah, working in the streets. Wow. Okay. So, how? What was the first thing you noticed that was totally new and different in jewelry techniques from when you were in Taos? That you were like, you were like, oh my, I haven't seen that before. Do you remember the first thing you saw? What uh, I think the forge. For me, that was that was it. it was Forging. On, yeah, on the street, melting the metal and charcoal and cast ingot and transform that ingot just with a hammer and an anvil into beautiful bracelets. Yeah, that's pretty. In magic. few minutes. Yeah, that's pretty. Magic. Yeah, it is. Now, would you say that um, in West Africa, then, from what you just described, it sounds like a very ancient goldsmithing approach. Is that true? Because it's, what do you think? It is. I think it's still really related to um, blacksmithing. Okay. I mean, you can really see that they are coming from the same family. And actually, over there, they are the same family, the blacksmithing uh, people and metalsmiths. Got it. Goldsmiths and silversmiths, yeah. Well, now, when you saw them on the street, were they working in gold or were they working in silver or what was the prominent metal used? Well, at that time, it was 17 years ago. It was still quite a lot of gold yeah. uh, working. Uh, today, unfortunately, there is very little gold work coming out uh, with the, you know, the price of gold went up and since right. that, it's, yeah, it changed. But at the time, it was, I would say, definitely over 30% of gold pieces. And was it the high carat gold, like working in 22, 24 karat gold? Not, mostly 18. Mid 18, okay. Yeah, and they will do a lot of uh, uh, gold gilding uh, to make, to give the color of 22. Right, which is so gorgeous. That's addicting right there. Yeah, it is, definitely. I mean, seeing gold work being done is very addicting. Now, were they using torches or were they using fire? 
I mean, how primitive were the tools they were working with? Well, I've seen, I've seen both. So, uh, a lot of dry drillers will do soldering on the fire with a little pipe and they, they could solder like teapot, anything, just straight on the fire. Some people were using uh, butane torches mm-hmm. and gasoline torches. I personally have never seen that, and I don't understand how someone could use a little pipe and fire and do soldering or do any work. So, or bellows. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's just amazing to see. It's just they 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 get the whole piece ready with a little bit of borax and the solder where they want it, and start heating up. And if they need the, the flame to go at one place, they just blow on it and push it towards the solder with the pipe. That that must take. Years of practice and skill sets. I don't. Oh yeah. The, yeah. The, <laughs> sorry. No, the young, the, the jewelers, they start at eight year old. Most of them, and it's a family trade, so it's passed on from father to son. Okay. And, and they always, even before eight, they live in the workshop, so they see they see it and and learn no matter right. what. Yeah, that makes sense because that kind of skill is. In Brett, I mean, it's just in you to be able to do that. I know. Oh, definitely, and the way. Yeah. If Sorry. I tried to blow some solder with a with a pipe, <laughs> that wouldn't go well at all. I'm just saying. So they've got that. That must be amazing to see. Well, now, so it's being taught over there. Then um, generation generation, not specifically going to a trade school. It's is that how the skills are being passed on? Yes. Yeah, there's, I mean, I've been, I've seen one trade school in Dakar during my last trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but except that, I've never seen any in West Africa. And w- were they open to teach you some of their family um, secrets and skills and trade? Well, I think that's one of the beauty of it is the generosity of sharing those techniques. You just sit down with them and being a jeweler, you're part of their family. And so, of course, they'll once in a while they'll try you. They'll like see if you can do something with your hand. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you, they see it, that right away they'll give you anything and show you anything without asking for anything in return. It's just pure sharing, just beautiful. Yeah, that's very special because that is, and people can be generous um, in the United States, but sharing things like that. You don't do that. No, I, I rarely seen people keeping secrets. I've, I've seen some, but really rare where they, it's their technique and nobody needs to know. In contrary, it's like you're just sharing. And that's how it works. When you're a young jeweler in Africa, if you want to learn a technique, you find the person who's good at it and you sit with him and learn. Right. Right. Like old apprentice yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I see now, especially in this country, what's so prominent is people getting upset when someone else does something technique. They want to, everyone wants to claim it as their own. <laughs> and um, that's, you know, that's not a win-win situation. What you're saying is very interesting. So now, is there a sense of competition then? Or how does that resolve then through you know, the whole process of different people making jewelry, you know, is, how does that work? 
Because certainly someone can't say, like, how does, how does each artist distinguish themselves from the next if everyone's sharing the same techniques? Well, I think it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, some are good at it. Um, okay. So they'll, they'll be, you know, nicer pieces. And some are a little bit less good. And, but altogether, the pieces can be very similar in that technique. But right. it seems to work. It's just, um, I, I, you know, I think it's, if you look at the, I don't know, a lot of artists in the States uh, share their technique. Um, um, Charles Luttenbrain, you know, shares full forming all the time. And right. the, I think just the sharing is what's important. I do too. Oh, I do too. And then you have to bring your own personal flavor to it. Now, what about design? Is that taught design uh, from strictly a design point of view? Or is it really technique driven following um, classical design? Yeah, that, that, that's it. It's technique driven and there is the traditional design. Um, from like Roman times? Some people... Like, really? uh, they've been doing the same for, you know, Hundred years, yeah. I will say, and yeah, um, yeah they, they keep the same design. Once in a while, you'll find a jeweler will really uh, get out of his way to to uh, be different, and that's great. And uh, and they, but I always uh, heard that they, what they want, they actually want to learn new design and and try to get out of the mold of the same pattern. Um. With that, it's a very difficult one because I think the design are great the way they are. They can mm-hmm. change a little bit and make it better. But if we change, if they change too much, also it's kind of losing a little bit part of the culture. Yeah, yeah, I I hear you for sure. Well, that's interesting. All right, so now how is all of this influence? Describe your work and and who you are as a jeweler. Um, well, my work is. Base, most of the pieces I'm doing are, are stamped. Um, okay. Going so, back to going going back to the roots uh, in New Mexico, and of course the Tuareg do a lot of stamp work, so I can see where it's also um, attached to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stamp work I'm doing is a bit different than what you can find in New Mexico. I instead of adding stamp to a piece, I, I just stamp the whole. Uh, sheet of metal so it, it really gives a, a, a texture to the sheet of metal and from that I work and, and make my piece and do you use your own stamps that you make or are you using old stamps how do you start texturing the metal okay I have old stamps from New Mexico that I bought at a pawn shop or old friend gave mm. them to me mm-hmm. since I made a lot of stamps also I got stamps from Tuareg in Niger, uh, in Burkina. Uh, when I meet jewelers who do stamping, they usually offer me a few stamps. So I you have starting a to have a nice collection. Yeah. And the way you use stamps, does it look like it's stamping or do you not know that's what it is because you've textured it so? Uh, it, well, if you look close and if you know stamping, you will definitely know it, it is stamping. Okay. Uh, a lot of people think it's a uh, roll milled, uh, rolled texture on. Right. Uh, but it's yeah, deep deep stamping. 
I have already stamped a few times at the same place. And, yeah. and that's your texture and your background. And then tell me about, I saw online, I was looking um, that you had made jewelry from old molds that you got from retiring jewelers. Yeah, I bought a collection um, of old molds and I, I wanted to keep them to, to bring them to Africa when I'm opening a school there. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was trying them to see what was there, and I had lots of interesting pieces. So I decided to create puzzle pieces with all those waxes, and I made a necklace with only rings, oh. old old rings, old set in, with the stone on, and different pieces like that. So were you recasting from these old molds and then collaging them together as a new piece? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's fun. That's a way of bringing it was out. A, it was a lot of fun. It's a little bit like, and they're all called heirloom, the, the, the main uh-huh. series. Yeah. And so I start showing that. we. Uh, I, I'm part of a group of 14 jewelers of Quebec, and we're starting to do show all around well, we're trying to do one city a year or even two. And we did one in New York at uh, Aaron Faber. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gallery. And so I was showing those pieces there. I saw a picture of them. They are fascinating. It's a like a, like a journey to look at a piece and see all the different elements that's in there creating. No, thank you. It's, yeah, it's fabulous. It's a fun, it's, it's a fun process. Yeah, I bet. It's a big puzzle there. So now you went and you opened a school in in Af- in West Africa. No, no, not yet. I'm I'm trying to open a school. Oh, you are. Um, okay. Yeah, it's been very difficult. I, I I was wanted to do one in Guinea and it was slowly on its way but it, it they had a couple coups since and so I'm waiting now for the for the place to uh be a bit more stable and uh, yeah and yes that's one of my uh, dream would be to definitely open a school there and you would teach jewelry making from what point of view everything you come well, I would like actually yeah I would like the the jeweler uh, from there to be the teachers Got but it. to form the teacher to be able to give a little bit more um, Techniques like uh, probably in February I'm going to Mali to teach some jewelers, um, and I don't like the term teaching when I go there because I think they have more to teach me anyway. I understand. But let's say to uh, with them to maybe di- discover new techniques that they can use even in the traditional jewelry and to make it a little bit more desirable to to the West where there is a, a better market for them. Okay. So you're adding some mm, sort of marketing skills, squishing it into the design a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Extending. So now you reside in Quebec, correct? Yeah. I moved after Mali. I moved to Quebec and I did a jewelry school uh, here to learn really more the traditional part of the jewelry um, making, mm-hmm. uh, stone, stone setting and Etc. So I did a school for a year and a half, and now I've been teaching there for seven years. Do you enjoy teaching? 
I love teaching. I love sharing uh, the techniques. I think it's a great, uh, and, and I love seeing people uh, evolving uh, in their work and getting better. Uh, it's really a, a great job. And are these people who want to be professional jewelers, or are these hobbyists, or a mixture, or who are you teaching? There is a mixture. There is a mixture. Uh, a lot of them uh, probably want to work for a company and at the bench. Okay, bench jewelers. Yeah. So they want to learn technique. Yeah, techniques. And, and then, I, I also teach in a... Go ahead. No, I also teach in a, another school in Montreal where in that school I teach African techniques. So I, oh. when I go to Africa, I film and I study a technique like filigree or forging. And after I go and teach it and the revenue of that class, I share it with the jeweler I filmed over there. Oh, that's nice. So it's almost like, a, almost like I'm giving the class with him. That's very nice. What was the first technique you said before forging? Silvery? Filigree. Oh, filigree. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's intense. Yeah. That's very technique-driven, correct? Yeah, filigree is... Uh, um, uh, <laughs> you have to be very patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> But the, the person I, the person I work with in Guinea is uh, Ibrahim Akonde is just amazing. He's just sitting all day doing his filigree, and wow, it's it, I'm just uh, blown away. I think they're in the Zen mode to be able to do that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a very um, you know you have to be at one with your craft when you're doing that especially the intense work like that. And oh, I would, yeah. I'd be surprised. Is that, but what is the most popular skill that people want to learn now? See my, what I've sort of noticed is that, um, uh, things like granulation or filigree or, or repose, the things that in, in require a lot of patience are not as popular to want to be, um, learned at this point. Is that your experience? I agree. I think, uh, unfortunately, people want to go fast. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, um, so filigree, it's definitely not a technique that you can go fast. Right. Uh, um, it's actually maybe more interesting to a, a technique like relation than filigree. Because um, it, you know, and there is more jeweler who does it. Uh, I'm thinking about Al DeConnor who does great work with that. So it kind of like bring people to want to do it. Filigree, there is less uh, less work out there. So already the interest is getting uh, lost, I find. Yeah. And so people want to learn, what would you say? What would be the trend of what people want to learn how to do? Uh, well, I think... Uh, the new uh, well, fold forming, it, it's something you have a, a nice result. So that's a, a big interest. Um, Michael Good technique of uh, um, uh, anti-clastic Anti work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think all those work are really in right now. And, yeah. And, and people really like it. 
Yeah. And I do too. I do too. Yeah. yeah it's beautiful. But yeah. it all takes time. Yeah. I, I don't think anything in, in metal smithing is fast. Buy, buy someone else's no, work if you want it fast. <laughs> no, exactly. No, I think it's, uh, and the beauty of it is to try and to have fun. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it takes some and, time. And, oh, it takes a lot of time. And if you want to be good at it, just spend hours and hours and hours. And yeah. Yeah. It's just, come. To sell your work, it takes a while. Do you feel like how long would you say? How long do you think it is before someone has their own unique voice in their work? With someone, like, what's your take on that? How long it takes? Well, I think it's a uh, it, it it varies for the person. I think um, what I, I find it's important, and I I got lost in for a long time. I really didn't know what I wanted to do mm-hmm. uh, as as jewelry really and so I will do something and change and do something and change and and I find you get lost easy and somebody told me once you really have to concentrate on one thing at least for a year and just do that and nothing else and that's how slowly I created my own style and really uh, stick to it and I think that's a very important uh, that's very good advice uh, yeah yeah because what you're saying before about being fast to say to someone, concentrate a year on just that could freak someone out. <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't mean you don't sell during that time. But it's it's important to stick to something and and, and push it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It is. Um, are you someone that when you're working on something, um, there's a big pile of the ones that didn't work before you have what you like? Yeah, there is. There is, and it's funny when I work on something. In general, I don't like it when it's finished. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. No, nope. I give it. I yeah, I give it. You know, everything during the process, and I mean, it's not true. Sometimes I do like it, but most of the time, I'm, you know, I, I want it to go maybe a little bit uh, further. So, yeah, it's starting over. And yeah. how do you know when a piece is done? Uh, it's if it's if I like it, if I like it, it's done. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. And so you just have to all of a sudden say, "No, I love this," because everyone has a different point where you're. I call it like wrestling it to the ground to get it so you like it. Yeah, and I like it today. That means like my wife will say, you know, each time she'll show something, and I'll, I'll right away I say, "Oh, that's old," because it's over. Yeah, um, I like a piece like the one I'm working today. That's the one I'm gonna I'm gonna like just now. Yeah, and the rest is okay, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's today. I think that's healthy, frankly, because you're in love with the process. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So when it's done, there's no you're not involved with it anymore. No, it becomes an object. Yeah. No, I hear you. I have a rule. Uh, when I would teach here that, um, and for myself, when you finish something at the end of the day and you're like, ugh, I don't know, I don't like it, and it's done, you can't melt it until the following morning. You have to come down with fresh eyes and a cup of coffee to relook. <laughs> no melting at night. <laughs> no, that's it. But I do love melting pieces. You do? Uh, so there is something in it where, you know, I've, I've 
I will make something and it doesn't sell for a while and to recycle it and to melt it. I, I don't know. There's something great about it. I agree. What's what, what, tell me why, what's great about it? Uh, well, just to, I find our job is uh, also allows us to just retransform the, uh, what we have instead of always losing it. Yeah. So that's one part of it. Um, and being in Africa again, it's, you know, it's very rare to find old jewelry because it's always remelted. Somebody wants a new piece, they bring their old one and they transform it into a new one. Well, that is what's so amazing, certainly about gold and, of course, silver. But, you know, when you use metals, precious metals, that's one of the wonderful things. Yeah. No, definitely. You know, I love how over in India, all the women wear their gold because that's what you do. Because it's yeah. it's value and, and you can always just redo it, remelt it. It is a very cool thing. Now, how much time do you spend creating at this point as a jewelry artist? What? How much time are you in the jewel? Uh, how much time are you in the studio creating? In a week, let's. Well, lately, not much. Not much. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, that's. Uh, yeah, it's a tricky time now, and I have to find the balance between teaching and uh, and jewelry making, and I think. Um, the teaching took over for a few years and now it's time to switch it around. Right. Now, do you, yeah. are you the kind of artist that um, you go into your studio and you don't come out until you finish the process? I mean, are you uh, driven that way or can you actually say, oh no, it's five o'clock, time to leave? No, I need to finish what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and usually I, for me, uh, the mornings, uh, if I go down to this workshop and have the four hours from eight to noon, uh, I'll have a great day. But that's very productive. For creativity so, in the morning. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 totally. But, you know, same thing in the last uh, while, uh, writing a book, I find it's, uh, it's actually a lot of work. <laughs> it t- took also a, a lot of time. Yeah, everything so, takes yeah. time. Oh. It all takes time. Oh, yeah. So what's creatively, what's on your mind or on your bench next? What's something that you want to tackle that you're thinking about? Well, I'm going to work on, through the year, I've been picking up stones everywhere in Africa, a little rock here and there. And I would like, I'm going to start making a series uh, with those plain rock. Mm. Maybe, yeah. So that's the next project. That sounds interesting. That'll take some time in the studio. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. That sounds good. Well, I'll be excited to see that. Now, just tell everyone, do you know approximately when your book's going to be coming out? Not 100%. Probably, uh, I would imagine, between the end of the summer and the fall somewhere. Next year, 2014. Yeah. And do you have yeah. a tentative title so people can be on the lookout? We're not sure on that one yet. Okay. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely jewelry techniques of West Africa, but uh, a title will come up for okay. sure. All right. Well, we'll be looking for it. it. Yeah, and it's going to be at Bryn Morgan Press. Um, 
of course, Tim McCright's publishing company. So you can always check there to find it. Because if it's one of Tim's books, I know it'll be extra special. Oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's doing a great job. Yes. Well, thank you, Matthew, for coming on and chatting with me today. We always love to hear from people doing work around the world. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I'm, it was, it's always great, and um, I will be looking for your book. Well, thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed my talk with Matthew. Uh, I love his accent. I could listen to that for a long time. Uh, and all of you who have the Craftcast app, uh, make sure you listen to the bonus question, the bonus material. Uh, Matthew talks about his personal advice for artists trying to do teaching and creating, how to balance that out. So make sure uh, you listen to that. If you don't have the app, you can go buy that at the iTunes store or come to the Craftcast site, and there's a link for purchasing that. So there we go. So today's ET, the entertaining thought part of the show, is really thinking about um, production tips. Those of you who've listened, uh, you know there's a new Craftcast class coming up called Don't Quit Your Daydream. Um, which is a class with me all about how to move that dream forward. So here's a little production tip I'm going to share with you today, which is a lot of people talk about, I can't make enough time in the studio. I never get into the studio. The time slipped away. Little thing, one little thing that can help is actually writing down and scheduling the time in your studio. Just like you write down your dentist appointment, a doctor appointment, appointment with your child's teacher, uh, you put it in and you show up for it. Uh, If you treat your studio time that way, it can make a huge difference. Uh, I know that. I know what I speak of. Uh, Doing these podcasts, I have to write in the time. Otherwise, it just goes in my head of saying, I'll do it tomorrow or whenever I have time. That doesn't happen. You know that doesn't happen, people. So you've got to write it down. So write down studio time, put the exact time, and whether it's 15 minutes or five hours, write it down however you do, and uh, and then show up for your studio time appointment. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, you can always come over to craftcast.com and get all the links under podcasts for today's podcast, number 186. So you can find things that we talked about, as well as check out all of the uh, classes, the videos, the new upcoming classes, sign up and uh, get an account over at Craftcast. There's also free things to watch over there. So we love hearing from you. You can always get me at support at craftcast.com. And until next time, you know what I have to say. Get your butt in the chair and keep crafting. Just get yourself right into your chair. Come on, listen. You can learn to create something new. It starts inside you.